Hi, you're watching Amphor Advocacy Media. This is the Journey Series video podcast. My name is Mark. I'm a co-host and I'm a brown man, uh, bald with uh, black glasses. Today I'm wearing an orange shirt um, in front of a brown background. I used to have a black beard, but don't know. <laughs> And I'm Crystal. I'm a white woman with uh, brown hair, brown eyes, and I have red glasses on, a black shirt with some different colors on top, and with a brown background. And today uh, we're talking to Marjorionos, and she's going to tell us a bit about her story and what she's working on to uh, aid the disability community. Hi, Marjorie. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm um, for the invitation and for the opportunity to tell my story. Sure. Really appreciate it. So I am a white woman. Uh, with brown hair and brown eyes, wearing black glasses. Um, I'm also wearing a black shirt. And my background is actually my office. So there's a lot of books and um, a filing cap cabinet with some pictures of my son, who's 13 years old. Um, so... Uh First of all, did did uh, we pronounce your name right? Onos. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, maybe you could start out, Marjorie, just by telling us uh, what uh, what started you on this path journey that you're on. Yes. So, I think the beginning of my story. Um, I would started at the age of twenty years old. Um. I was looking for a summer job and I got hired to work with um, a young girl who has uh, an intellectual disability. And I was working to be sort of her shadow, her special educator, so that she could be included um, in the summer camp. Um, and so I worked with her and very rapidly, a lot of people were telling me, well, you should meet her mom. You should meet her mom. And I didn't really understand why they were asking me to meet her mom. Um, but I went, okay, I guess if people think that it would be a good thing, I'll go and meet mom. And so I asked um, mom to, to come after um, a day uh, after the camp. And, um, and I showed up and I realized that mom also had an intellectual disability. And there's two things in this part because one I thought it was interesting that a lot of people uh, would think that I needed to meet mom um, with that sort of connotation in their voice like oh you need to meet mom you know like not just like you need to meet mom because she's mom but there was something about it um, and I realized when I met her that they were actually sort of wanting or hinting me to to her intellectual disability. In any case, this meeting of this mom was, I think, the beginning of my journey where I thought I should be working with parents who have an intellectual disability themselves. 
I felt there was a lot of discrimination just in those little sort of you should meet mom comments. Um, and this mom was doing everything she could to provide for her daughter and her son. Um, she was actually, when I showed up uh, in the apartment, she was trying to, um, she was making their lunches for the next day. And she was really making sure that they had all the four food groups, you know, and that it was like um, uh, everything was in it. There was enough food for for the both of them. And so I saw how much she cared, how much she loved her children and how much she wanted to do a good job. And I felt it was very unfair that people were sort of a little bit judging her um, because of her intellectual disabilities. So what I did from there is I went on the internet and I researched, I went to the library actually um, and researched and found that there were scholars who um, were working with parents with disabilities. And I decided that I wanted to continue my education to become a psychologist and, and work um, with parents with disabilities. And so that's what I did for, uh, for almost five years. Um, and I was trained by experts in the field, the ones who created the field in terms of the scholarly field um, of parents with intellectual disabilities. I was very fortunate to work with them. And then I was hired to work in a rehabilitation center. So that's how we call them um, in uh, Canada, in the province where I'm at. And those rehabilitation centers offer services for persons who have an intellectual disabilities. And I worked as a psychologist. I created um, a program to be able to offer advocacy and services and support parents with intellectual disabilities. So I was very proud of that. Um, it was all based from, from my own research and from my desire to advocate. Um, and um, I was so impressed by all the moms that I've um, met, you know, through, through my work, uh, that I thought, well, you know what? These moms are strong, they're determined, they're loving, they're kind. Um, I have similar qualities, so I could probably also become a mom and do a great job like they do. And so I decided to become a mom and I decided to become a mom on my own, which was uh, a big step and a big decision. And so I had Thomas and, um, and we were very happy in our little house and with my work um, and my friends and my family all around us. And then um, when he was 16 months old, I, um, we were at my parents' cottage and I decided that I needed to go back to work. Actually, not decided. I needed to go back to work after some vacation at my parents' cottage. And so I, I asked my parents to babysit Thomas for a couple of days so that I could go back to work. And on my way to work, my car slid on black ice. And um, while it slid on black ice, it sort of turned. And it was right at the moment where there was a bigger truck going coming the other way. And so in that accident, I sustained a spinal cord injury. And so 
it took really, I don't know, not even minutes, I don't think. Um, and I became a mom with a spinal cord injury or a mom with a disability. And that was, well, that was um, very difficult for me. Um, I was always the helper. I was always the one who was uh, in charge and doing things. And all of a sudden, I was the person who needed a lot of help. Um, adjusting to a spinal cord injury is something that's pretty difficult, especially when you are a single mom of a toddler. Um, because I had to stay in the hospital for a month. And then I had to go to rehabilitation for another five. Um, which meant that for six months, I couldn't, I wasn't living with my son. Um, I was lucky to have parents who took care of my kid while I was taking care of me. But in that process, I was really taking care of us, uh, us being Thomas and I, because, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm strong and capable of doing things, then I'm taking care not only of me, but I'm taking care of him as well. And so that was very, very important to me. And that was my motivation. And I think in a way, um, the strength that I collected or gathered during those months, um, I took from, from all of these women that I had met and worked with who were doing extraordinary things um, in a world that often discriminate um, against them. And I was so um, sure uh, that the discrimination would also hit me that I remember in the um, hospital room thinking, oh my God, like youth, protect youth protection, child welfare is going to come and they're going to show up at my door at any time now. And they're going to ask me, like, have you thought of how you're going to take care of him? Uh, what are you going to do in your house? How, how are you going to feed him? And so forth. And so for every little concern that I thought they might come up with, I had sort of pre prepared a plan. And it was very sort of detailed. And that was my job, right? That's what I did with um, mothers with intellectual disabilities. I created plans with them. Um, and so that was, it came naturally to me, but nobody came, nobody ever came to my door. And that to me was very striking. And I, for, for months, even for years, I wondered why. And I realized that not only these women had been discriminated against because of their intellectual disabilities, but a lot of them were from different cultures, minority, minority cultures, um, may have um, a skin of a disparate color. I mean, I'm white, I'm well-educated, I have funds and money, uh, resources, a family that's there. And so all of these elements um, that often were not the case in the families that I had supported, I realized the privilege um, that I had and how that affected me differently. And so even though I had um, a new acquired disability, the discrimination was still not the same as the women I worked with. Um, and that was very eye-opening for me. Very eye-opening. That's okay. 
Sorry about that. That's okay. I was, I was, uh, I tend to fidget, and I was playing with one of her hair clips. Yes. And then I it popped, and I let it go in the thing. Yeah. Anyways, we'll cut that part out, I think. <laughs> or maybe it we'll put in the outtakes. Or yes. Yeah. Sorry. That's go okay. on, please. So... So yeah, so I felt about um, that discrimination and and the privilege that that I have being white and and educated um, and how that played differently. In the same time, I think um, experiencing disability myself, I realized that um, you know the color of my skin doesn't really matter because often when you go somewhere. Um, you know, people won't look at you in the eye when you're sitting in a wheelchair. Um, so if I go, for example, you know, in an airport or in a store and I'm with someone who's able-bodied, um, the cashier will look at the person who's standing, not me, even though I'm the one who asked the question. So I find that fascinating um, for, for lack of better words, um, because I'm a researcher, I think I find that fascinating. And I often sort of have to, you know, tell people, hello, I'm the one talking, I'm the one speaking, and sort of advocate for myself now. So disability has definitely sort of changed um, part of my outlook anyways. And I, as for the rest, you know, after uh, the six months I was in rehab, I came back home. We had a whole year where I had to adapt my house. Um but all the while I was raising Thomas with the help and support of my parents, because the first year um, and a half, my house was not adapted, accessible. Um, so I needed them. And, um, and that's it. And now, like, Thomas is 13 years old. Um, he's grown. He's doing super well. Um, he has a great interest in everything that makes the world a more accessible place. Um, I remember when he was um, a little boy, he played with his Legos and before Lego invented the wheelchair in Lego, my son was building those wheelchairs, um, taking parts, cars of different sizes and making sure that um, there was a wheelchair in his play. And that was um, interesting. And then building those buildings with no stairs or with elevators or with ramps. And so for him, the way that his world has been shaped by my disability, I think has made him very creative, very innovative, um, very solution focused and very justice driven. And I think that um, sometimes we see disability as, um, as something less as something, you know, like that's how society sees it anyways. Um, what I've learned is that actually disability can some be, can be something um, that adds. Um, and, and really the disability experience, it's learning how to be capable um, in a disabled body. And I will maybe end my, my little, <clears throat> with a story. Um, and the story was when I came back home, um, I wanted to put Thomas in his high chair so that I could feed him. 
And I would often sort of like try to pick him up like I would have as an able-bodied person. And so I sort of grabbed him in my arms, but then I would be stuck right here, like right before I could sort of actually put him in the uh, high chair. And so I needed help. And I kept saying to my to my mom, can you put Thomas in the high chair? I'm going to give him his supper or his breakfast. And my mom would do that. And um, my sister had about three years after my accident, a son. And uh, Ben and I, I think, are very close. And I think part of it was that everybody who walked would often sort of go on and play. Um, and Ben and I would be sort of stuck, quote unquote, at the table, um, making faces and like laughing at each other um, when he was just a little baby. And so we have this great connection. And at the same age that Thomas was at my accident, so about two years old, um, I wanted to feed Ben because he was hungry and it was supper time. And so I went, Ben, come here and put your feet right here and then put your knee right there on my knees and then twist your body and sit on my knees. And then don't move. I'm going to get closer to the high chair and I'm going to ask you, put your foot right here on the high chair and I'm going to hold your arm. And when it's when I say go, you're going to twist your bum and sit in the high chair. And I'm just going to push you so that you could sort of land on the high chair. And we did that and it was wonderful. And what that taught me is exactly that. When I had my accident, when I returned home, I was trying to do to take care of Thomas the way I had done it as an able body, not knowing what my disabled body could do. Um, and it was sort of like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't swing him um, or put him like I did before. So I felt, well, then I can't do it. When in truth, I just needed to figure out what I could be um, capable of doing and play with my strength and play with the strength of Ben so that we could do it together. And I think that that is very telling in terms of even in a disabled body, you are quite capable of doing everything you want to be doing. It's just a matter of how. And um, that's my story. That's uh, oh, Thank you for sharing that story with us. That was, uh, that was great. And uh, I'm personally, I'm still kind of trying to figure out how to um still stuck in that mode of trying to do some things yeah i've but had mine for like 24 years now he was just diagnosed yeah and it's it's just kind of different like with the progressive disability anyways i feel it's it's hard to know what you can and can do sometimes or admit yeah. yeah, but um, I had one question. So um, you mentioned that you're in Canada. Yep. And I know for people that are not in Canada, we have certain pictures of what, what the healthcare system is and what it isn't, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering 
what has been your experience and the experience of other people you've uh, dealt with who are disabled? Um, Pre-disability versus uh, what the what your current experience is? Yes, that's a great question. So as you know, in Canada, um, the healthcare is meant to be free. Um, so everybody can access, especially when there's acute care needs. Um, and so for me, in terms of post-accident being in the hospital, that was all taken care of. And, and, and I was brought to the center of excellence in spinal cord injury very rapidly after the, um, the accident, like within hours, um, so that they could take care of me. Um, I had surgery done and I was um, uh, in acute care for, for a few days. Um, the rehabilitation process is probably the one that I know the most in terms of being able to compare like, my, like the experience of my clients and mine. Um, and again, I would say that um, we have different services that are offered um, so it could be from different professionals, so an occupational therapist, a physiotherapist. Um, of course, you have nursing uh, that's involved. You have a series of different doctors. And so my experience with my clients was pretty similar. The rehabilitation center I worked with had all of these uh, professionals. We also had psychologists and social workers on, um, on staff. Um, and so most of the clients that I worked with had a social worker that was sort of a given. Uh, the social worker's role was to coordinate all of those services. Um, and then if they had more needs, then another professional would branch out. It was pretty similar for me um, in that um, I didn't have like an assigned social worker, but I had a team based on the needs, um, the things that I needed to work on. Um, and actually, at, at one time, I actually had, I think, four different um, occupational therapists assigned to my case, because each had sort of a different level um, or, or topic or theme that they were working on. So it could have been like the house adaptations, and then there was the work adaptations. And then there was, um, well, Thomas, um, so any parenting skills. Um so it took quite a, um, it, was a, it was a big process, the rehabilitation um, for me, um, because I had six months intern and I was several years getting um, external supports. My client um, probably got external support through their uh, lifetime. Um, and so as soon as they got into the services, they would, um, you know, get different professionals involved throughout. So that's what it looks like of it. We had talked uh, before about um, <laughs> being a parent with a disability is much different than a non-disability parent. Um, and the perspective we have and the ideas we have around how we would like to raise our children 
of course, society tells everyone around us that we're doing it wrong. <laughs> and, um, but that doesn't, oftentimes that doesn't matter for the child though. They still, like you mentioned, they're so creative and they still see they want to help, the, you know, they want to help mom, you know, they want to solve things. And it's children today are so much different because there's more disabled parents that are able to hands on with sometimes, not always. Yep. I definitely know that, um, but um, there's definitely an aspect of parents are having more ability to be able to be hands-on, and those children are definitely turning into some awesome people, and I'll try, yeah, fixers and understanding the world and you know I'm not just a not just the fixing kind of thing but also they have more empathy they're a lot you know they they understand a lot more about the world I think yes they're more <laughs> inclusive and the world needs that um I yes. think you know like Very you mentioned society um how many times has it been difficult for me? I mean, going to the park, difficult. I can't, I couldn't get into the sand because of my wheelchair or like going to the arena and um, making sure that I could watch his hockey games or um, going to the pool. Those are all things that should be accessible to everyone, including kids who have disabilities themselves. And so every time that I was left out or I felt left out of those buildings, I thought, but there are kids with disabilities. That means if I can't get in, they can't get in either. Mm -hmm. um, I was very like, uh, I think frustrating for me because I was like, no, these kids need to socialize with other children and our children need to so socialize with um, kids who have all kinds of different abilities and disabilities. Um, and, um, you know, I, just like you said, Thomas didn't really care that I was in a wheelchair. What he cared about was when I couldn't go to these places um, because it wasn't accessible. That he cared um, in that he was like, it's not fair that you can go um, like right. the other parents. And that that's a really huge hurdle that disabled parents struggle with because that means that you're not building their relationship as you don't have that same on the same plank field that you know in all the other parents have. You're you you can't spend that quality time with them because you can't even get to where they're where they can get to, you know. Yeah. 100%. I I think that one of the uh Perhaps the the thing that makes all the difference is that Thomas or other children that are that have uh, parents with disabilities spend that those formative years where they have no exposure to anyone else other than that 
uh, disabled parent and so they have a chance to build that empathy and all that other good stuff. Whereas kids who don't have that, we'll call it advantage, they, um, they're running around with all the other kids and with parents that don't have to go through this. So they're shielded from all that and then they become adults and we, yeah. And kids are extremely impressionable. And if they're around able-bodied adults that are telling them over and over again that your parent is doing it wrong and we know how to do it better, then they're going to mimic that and they're going to internalize that themselves. It affects our children. And we always wonder if we're doing a good job. Um, and it's hard when you see in society those ideals of what parents are meant to be doing and where parents are meant to be bringing them to the soccer field and to the arena and they're meant to swim with them. And, and sometimes it's not possible for us. Um, but what I've... And, you know, like those those preconceptions and misconceptions, I have internalized them and I had to struggled. I think that's why uh, it's a big reason why I was um, I had mental health issues uh, after my accident for many years. It's because I kept sort of wanting to be this mom who did everything um, like society sort of tells parents that we should be everything for our children. Um, and then I sort of learned through my interactions with my child, with Thomas, that really he didn't care. I mean, first of all, he didn't like soccer and hockey. So for him, it was like, oh, we don't have to go. Oh, I'm happy. Right. Uh -huh. And so it was about sort of like doing other things with him based on his personality um, and it was about finding those those little places that we knew we could go together. It was about finding those activities we could build our relationships on. And it was also about sort of, and, and I think that was the most beautiful part, um, is that our relationship and how we worked it out in our parenting um, it also affected and impacted Thomas's friends. Um, and so just by me wanting to be on the soccer field or by me wanting to go to the birthday party, well, all of a sudden parents were like, oh, we need to check if it's accessible for Marjorie to come in. Or we need to figure out a way for, you know, uh, two fathers who are strong to pick her up and bring her in if it's not accessible. And so it was a whole community that changed um, their outlook in terms of when they went somewhere, they thought, oh, it's accessible. I'll tell Marjorie that this place is accessible. Maybe she could come with Thomas. Um, and I chose, I guess, at one point in my whole process of uh, acknowledging my disability and living with it, um, it was to focus on those little positive nuggets where people would call and say, go there, it's accessible, or 
um, come over to my house. I figured a way for you to come in um, and see the change, not only in Thomas, in our daily interactions, but also in his children, uh, his friends and their parents. And so I chose to focus on those things. Right. And uh, I would assume you're talking about a small community, fairly small community, because um, that's not something we typically see in the big city, right? Everyone's going off to do their own thing. It's very... 100%. Well, I live in a big city. I live in Montreal. Oh. Um, when I talked about the community was sort of the people that we chose to be in our circle of friends. Oh. Um, so I'm not talking the larger uh, city. The larger city is a big beast. Um, <laughs> you know, I posted on my Instagram account just a couple of days ago, um, a funny reel. So a few years back, I took pictures of videos of my street and how my street is the, well, not the only one, but is a, a street that for years and years, decade, a decade, had just potholes everywhere. So holes. So for me to get off the sidewalk into the street, cross the street, it's like a landmine. It's just, it was, it's horrible. And uh, I've lived on this street 12 years and two weeks ago is when they redid the, the street after yeah. years okay, of complaints, <laughs> right? Yeah. 12 years. And I told them, yeah. I'm in a wheelchair. I need this to be done. Yeah. So yeah. 12 years. So I'm not very good at the big city either. Yeah. Well, Montreal is notorious for that. At <laughs> work, me and my friends used to joke that Montreal has two seasons, winter and construction. Yes. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. So it's hilarious because Mark decided to leave when it got hot. <laughs> and then he came right back after the heat was over and it started getting cool again <laughs> last week. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I love it here in Texas mostly because she's here. But, uh, um, yeah, I much prefer the cooler weather. Yes, uh, I'm more comfortable. I would like it if it. I would like it if it snowed once in a while, but it does every once in a while. Yeah, but if you. You're in the wrong place if you don't want to say it. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was thinking of this question when uh, we were talking a few minutes ago. Um, we've had we've talked to at least one person who uh, was a parent and his spouse. He was disabled and spouse was disabled, and they were uh, discriminated in the sense that people looked at them and said, "Oh, you're too disabled people. Uh, you could never possibly take care of a child." And then they took the child away for a time. Have uh, uh, what's been uh, your experience in dealing with people with disabilities? Yeah. About around that dish. And then uh, also, if I can 
another yes. part of that. Would you say it's more of single disabled, disabled parents or couples? Um, I don't know if there's a difference between um, single and couples being discriminated uh, this way. Um, I know that in intellectual disabilities, there's um, more single women with intellectual disabilities that are mom. Um, and there is a clear um, <clears throat> over-representation of parents with all kinds of disabilities in child welfare. The most often um, discriminated against are parents who have an intellectual disabilities. Um, and then it's physical disability, like someone with a spinal cord uh, injury, for example, uh, and then uh, sensory, so um, vision impairment or, or hearing impairment. Um, that was my biggest fear when I was in the hospital, that they would come and take my child because a lot of my clients had lost custody of their children at some point. Uh, very rare were the clients uh, who had not deal, dealt with child protection before. Um, so I saw it, I, I lived it. I, um, I mean, most of the interventions we did were to, to support the moms, but um, to really sort of advocate in front of this big machine that is child welfare that has um, sometimes assessment procedures that are uh, very biased. flawed. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Very flawed and biased. Um, and that do not consider the notion of, you know, what I said before, like capable in a um, someone who's capable yet disabled um, was not um, the same. Recently, I actually um, did a parenting capacity assessment for a man who became quadriplegic. And, um, you know, like he, he wanted to have um, time with his son. And it was very difficult to, to talk to um, the courts and to, you know, I had to really explain what that looks like and, and how, for example, um, a bathing, like bathing your toddler, uh, like I did, you know, many times, like uh, as parents, we do. Um, it wasn't actually me doing the movements because I knew that a soapy child um, and with me requiring to hold on with one arm because I don't have balance of my upper body. Uh, I couldn't sort of like hold him, uh, bathe him and hold myself to make sure that we wouldn't fall. So I needed sort of another arm. So basically I got two for the price of one. My mom was the one doing the actions, even though I was the one dictating what she needed to do. And so I still felt like I was bathing Thomas uh, even if it wasn't my arms doing the motion. And I would say to my mom, we went to the park today. Thomas had sand in his hair. So I think we need to wash his hair. And I would verbalize it so that Thomas knew that I was the boss. I was the one doing bathing him, but in a different way. And our way of doing showed him that, yes, we can do things as a team with other people, that it's okay to ask for help. 
but that notion or that way of perceiving parenting um, is not the common way, you know, like outside someone would have said, well, no, you're not bathing your child, your mom is. Well, no. Right. Um, and so I yeah. wish I could change, pers- you know, perceptions and right. share my story so that people understand that parenting can be done differently. And um, also, if those, of course, that's all the court is going to see that they're incapable of doing things if there's not prior supports already in place for them. You know, if they don't have the emotional support they need, the financial support they need, all those things that humans as a whole need, then, um, yeah, they're automatically going to be biased and it's not their fault. You know, you said something that's very true in talking about like financial resources, for example. And that's something that we forget often is that when you have a disability, um, finding employment is very difficult. So that leads a lot of us, um, you know, under the poverty line. And so a lot of the difficulties that we may see in even our parenting um, sometimes doesn't really have to do with us being capable or not capable, but it's um, us not being supported by society because we don't have access to um, proper means to be able to support ourselves. Yeah. And uh, back on the question of of parenting in custody, uh, have you seen any um, contrast or differences? Uh, Let's talk situations where there are two parents um, between um, couples that are both disabled or couples that are interabled where one person has the disability and the other doesn't? Have you uh, witnessed any differences there? Huge difference. Huge. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) So parents who are both disabled are not treated the same as um, an interabled couple. Um, And it's, again, that perception that um, an interabled couple well, the person who's able-bodied um, and mind um, will be able to patch um, the disability of the parent, uh, the other parent. And so there's, again, sort of that notion of seeing it as being able-bodied is, you know, the best and it's what parenting should look like. And so if there's at least one parent who looks like that, um, then it's safer. Um, there's many different ways, again, to do parent parenting. Um, and, you know, we figure it out. And some, some parents have had their disabilities all their lives. They know how to function in the world. Um, they know how to do it. They know which resources to access. Mm-hmm. And is it true that maybe 
um, if it's a, a physical disability that maybe between the year of one to four years old, um, we may require a physical support. Yes, that's, I mean, I needed it, uh, certainly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's short-lived. We're talking three, four years, you know, after that. I mean, I, I don't need help right now. My son is 13. We're, you know, communicating well. We have a great bond because we had those years where we were, you know, able to do activities and spend time together. And mm -hmm. so I manage my parenting pretty much the same way, actually, not the same way as I would have as an abled parent. It is different. Um, but I would argue that it's actually better um, because I've learned to be more patient. I've learned to be listening to my child more. I'm also more present physically at home um, mm -hmm. because, you know, like I had to adjust how I work. Um, and so all of those factors actually make me a much better parent than what I would have been if I had stayed um, physically abled. And there's there's something wrong with this system that would um, take a child away from a parent that can that can fulfill all their needs and take care of them like a parent should, and give it give them to some somebody else or some agency full of uh, able-bodied people that aren't looking out for those interests. Right. Yeah. Again, we go back to if the support's not there, uh, then obviously that that's all they're going to see, you know. Yeah. And we often talk about on here, <laughs> um, I feel like a broken record. Um, we the generational things that people are used to us not being, or not not seeing what we're capable of. So those systems aren't in place, and that includes the judicial system, a lot of systems. But um, so. We need to be able to not only show, prove ourselves of what we can do having a disability, but also changing perspectives of generational things that were, you know, told to people or shown to people or, you know, they, they kind of conform to what mostly the government was telling them. You know, so it's up to us to show a new narrative. Yes, yes, 100%. That's what I learned in the last few years. Um, I learned the power of stories, you know, and how when we use stories, we could um, really sort of shift um, those perspectives because we're changing the narrative. That's one of the reasons why I speak about um, me being a disabled parent and about doing this work. Because um, you're right, we need to change those narratives. And I actually um, want to thank all the parents with disabilities that I see on Instagram and that I follow 
um, or interabled couples that I follow, um, even like young, um, young people with disabilities, because they thrive and they like go, no, I'm going to show you what we're capable of. And they push the boundaries and the limits. And when they do that and record that, um, they do change the narrative for all of us. They also changed the narrative for someone like me who um, struggled a lot with sort of internalized ableism at the beginning um, because I wanted to be like before and I thought before was better when now I know it's not the case. Yeah, they they tend to normalize it uh, and make it okay um and slowly move us forward yeah yes um the previous previous way of living like going back to our parents generation and ones before that was all if you don't like something just hide it out of the rug or put it hide it put it in a different room yeah it would um I think it needs to be in the open. I think we need to talk about um, disabilities and what it is and what it's not. Um, Because there's a lot of things that I learned about. I mean, in my line of work, I've seen people who had spinal cord injury before, yet I hadn't realized all they go through because it's not just about not walking. Um, There's a lot of medical issues that go with it. And so there's a reason why, you know, we may request um, or need to have the handicapped parking near the entrance of a building. It's for safety reasons, but it's sort of like, if we were to talk about those reasons uh, for those decisions, um, maybe people would understand a little bit more um, of what it is like, and they would be more indulgent um, in, in seeing us and and living with us yeah um that that word indulgent um you know some people maybe have the sense i'm talking about people who don't have disabilities that maybe they're um, like especially if they're giving it to a charity or part of a charity themselves that they're somehow doing doing a favor or indulging people with disabilities or catering to them or you know um what is your sense of that hey look um i i see it you know i see how sometimes people um will pass little comments um, you know, like, oh, you're lucky you can park here right in front of the entrance. Well, it's not luck. <laughs> it's need. It's I require it um, because it's dangerous for me to park elsewhere. And because I'm sitting, um, they don't see me, the cars, the same way. And so it's actually dangerous for my, my um, safety. Um, and it's it's not understanding what disability means or what it is or all the things that we need to do 
um, to, yeah, just go to the store. It's not as easy as me jumping in my car and out of my car, uh, running into the snow store and coming out. Um, having a disability makes it more difficult. It's more time. It's um, a lot of strain on my shoulders, for example. And so that's why I often say that um, having a spinal cord injury is not just about not walking. It's all those little things. And if we were a little bit more open-minded in finding out what that disability is, um, or what those disabilities are, maybe we would be um, kinder to, uh, to everyone and realize also that maybe we have, you know, each of us um, do require help and support in different manner. Someone with a disability will require maybe a little bit more for different things. Um, but the thing that we may require more is actually to have a society that's more kind and open-minded um, to differences. Yeah. And I think uh, some of that where we could educate people on is seeing some of the advantages that we have over people who don't have the situation. Like, uh, the fact that we have to slow down and pay a little more attention means that we're more apt to listen and look around and see what's actually going on, whereas other people have the ability to just go by as if nothing's really, you know, they, they can just get their stuff done and not really pay attention to all this Yes. I often say that I used to be on a high-speed uh, high train um, and going, you know, full speed from point A to point B, not noticing what was outside of the train because it was going so fast. Um, and now I'm in a little trolley sometimes and I can, I can see what's outside the train and I can enjoy it um, and be there for Thomas and, and a whole new different way, which is uh, very exciting for me. Yes. <laughs> um, would you like to, um, what, are, what are you working on right now? Anything you want to promote? Yes, well, um, I shared, um, you know, we were talking about narratives before. Um, and I shared a little bit about how I learned to tell stories to be able to, um, hopefully change perspectives. And so that's what I did, you know, in the last few years started in the pandemic and those stories were collected and put into a book that's called mom on wheels. And the purpose of that book was really to showcase, um, how parenting is done differently and what, uh, I learned as a um, person with a newly acquired disability, be being a mom. Um, and so how I navigated services and the whole rehabilitation um, as a mom. And I shared also sort of that whole journey and my 
um, expertise or my work experience um, working with moms with intellectual disabilities in a TED talk that I delivered um, earlier this year. Um, and those are my little my little ways that I'm trying to sort of bring that forward um, so that people have a different image of what it looks like to be a parent and have a disability all at the same time. Awesome. That seems like something we definitely want to make a have our, we have resources on our website. We want to add that probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with us today, Marjorie. Thank you so much. Thank you to you too for what you're doing and um, for spreading the word and talking about disability and making it, normalizing it. We're on oh. that virtual eye, <laughs> but it takes uh, collectively all of us, you know, to uh, different parts of the world to be able to do that. So yes. hopefully we're all collectively making an impact. So, thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.